Okay, today we will be discussing the Ananga, Anangana Sutta. This is Sutta number five in the Machita Nikaya. The meaning of the title is without blemishes. Angana means a blemish and Anangana means without blemish. This sutta is spoken by the general of the Dhamma, the Dhamma Senapati, Venerable Sariputta Mahatera. Okay, the Venerable Sariputta addresses the monks and says, there are four kinds of persons existing in the world as classification of people. There's some person with a blemish who does not understand it as a blemish. Then there's some person with a blemish who does understand it, who recognizes that he has a blemish. Then there's a third person who has no blemish but doesn't realize that he has no blemish. And then there is a fourth person who has no blemish and who understands that he has no blemish. Okay, now next Sariputta arranges these four types of persons into two groups, the inferior and the superior. You could put it on the board. When we compare the two people who have some internal blemish, some imperfection in their character, then the one who recognizes it, who's aware of that imperfection or blemish, that is the superior person. And the one who does not recognize it, that is the inferior person. Similarly, of the two people without blemish, the one who does not recognize it, he is the inferior person, and the one who recognizes it, recognizes it as such, he is the superior person. Okay, now when Venerable Sariputta makes this discrimination, this distinction, of the four types of people, then Maha Mogalana raises the question, why of these two people with a blemish, one is said to be inferior and the other superior? And why of the two people without blemish, one is inferior and the other superior? Okay, now Saravanabal Sariputta gives a very reasonable answer to the question. And this, his answer underscores the importance of self-knowledge, of self-understanding. He says that when one has a blemish, if one does not recognize it as such, then one will not make any effort to remove that blemish. On the other hand, 
if one has a blemish within oneself and one recognizes it as such then one will make an effort to remove it so here you can see from this discrimination of the two types of persons the important thing is not whether one has the blemish or not but that I mean that's important but if one does have some blemishes, some imperfections, some defilements in one's character, then one should recognize them as they are, instead of deceiving oneself into thinking that one doesn't have these faults. Because if one deceives oneself into thinking that one doesn't have any faults in one's character, of thinking that one has reached some level, high level of attainment, while there are many faults still very strong and pronounced in one's character, then one will not make the effort to remove them. And if one doesn't make the effort to remove them, Sariputta says, this is in paragraph 4, then one will die with lust hatred and delusion still very strongly embedded in the mind and when one dies with greed, with lust, hatred and delusion very strongly embedded in the mind then those defilements will very likely lead to a lower rebirth and this is very dangerous situation because it's very easy to deceive ourselves about our own minds. We can see other people's faults very easily, <laughs> but our own faults very difficult to see. Just as we can see other people's faces very easily, but in order to see our own face, we need a mirror. And so to see our own faults, then we need a particular mirror to hold up to our mind. And the mirror which is most effective is a tool given by the Buddha called Satipatthana, particularly Chitanopasana. This means the contemplation of one's own mind. So if one sits for a certain period in meditation and just lays aside any other object of attention but just watches one's own mind to observe one's own thought patterns, what kind of thoughts emerge into the mind when you're not making an effort to focus the mind on anything, then one can see what are the factors which are most strongly rooted in one's own personality, in one's own mental makeup. It seems to me that sometimes people through force of will, if they use an object of concentration for samadhi, then they can focus very strongly on this object to the point where they're able to suppress all of their other thoughts. And in this way they can sometimes gain high states of concentration, but still there will be very strong defilements 
working just below the surface of the mind. But if one doesn't focus the mind on a single simple object, but just focuses the mind on itself and observes the mind, then one could see how, in what direction one mind, one's mind is moving. And if one uses the technique of labeling the states of mind, that's a greedy thought, that's an angry thought, that's a resentful thought, that's a depressed thought, that's a proud, conceited thought, that's a stupid thought, then one will understand one's own mind. Then when one observes the working of one's own mind, then one uses energy and effort to remove these faults. There are many techniques given by the Buddha for overcoming unwholesome states of mind. Those we won't go into detail now. But the important thing is to use effort or energy to eliminate these unwholesome states of mind. This is an aspect of right effort in the Noble Eightfold Path to eliminate the arisen unwholesome mental states. Okay, then Venerable Sariputta distinguishes these two people, two types of persons, with a simile. Okay, the person who has a blemish but doesn't recognize it and doesn't make any effort to eliminate it. This is like if we go to a shop and we buy a bronze dish which is dirty and stained. But we think, maybe we think it can be easily cleaned and then we can use it for our purpose, whatever purposes we want. But then when we get home with this dirty stained bronze dish, one just puts it in a corner someplace and doesn't bother to clean it, doesn't use it. Then this bronze dish will just collect dust and dirt and will become still more dusty than before. Okay, this is similar to the case when we have a stain in the mind, but one doesn't make any effort to remove that stain. On the other hand, somebody who recognizes his faults as being real faults and makes an effort to remove them, this is like if we buy a bronze dish from a shop, dirty and stained, then take it home, then we clean it, polish it, and use it for our purposes. And after we use it, then we clean it again. In this case, that the bronze dish is dirty and stained. When we buy it, it becomes clean and bright. This is like using effort and energy to remove the faults of the mind. In this way, we gradually eliminate raga, dosa, and moha, greed, hatred, and delusion, and die with an undefiled mind, either a mind which has been perfectly purified, in which case one achieves final nirvana, 
or else with a mind which is temporarily purified, in which case one will have a pleasant rebirth. Okay, then the other two persons. Did you want to add anything? Well, maybe to warn the people about the projections yeah. we have when we see other, other blemishes, when we see the dirt on other people's pots. Uh, we seldom can see what we don't have as blemish in others. Yeah. So that is very useful to know. Because when we have, when we are agitated because somebody else is blemish, we can look that we also have that. Because most of the time uh, it is our own blemish which comes as a mirror to somebody else. But when we don't have uh, these blemishes, it's very difficult to see another people's blemish once we don't have ourselves. That is very well. That is called projection. It's very well known. Okay, now we have the two people without blemishes. These are people who don't have blemishes working actively in the mind. It's not referring here to an arahant, one who has completely eliminated all blemishes permanently, but rather two people who don't have particular corruptions or faults of mind. Okay, now one might think it's better to be completely unaware of the excellence of one's character, but this is not what the Buddha. This is not the Buddhist position. The Buddhist position is that when one is free from faults, defilements, blemishes, one should recognize it as such, not to become proud of it, not as a basis for conceit but in order to protect oneself, to be on the guard to prevent oneself from falling into those same faults in the future. And also to avoid complacency, which means settling into one's state of temporary purity, then neglecting to make any further efforts to purify oneself. Okay, so now we have a person, we're in paragraph six, a person without a blemish who does not recognize that he has no blemish. Okay, now Sariputta says it can be expected that this person will give attention to the sign of the beautiful. Here it seems quite clear Sariputta is speaking specifically of, <laughs> of monks who are undertaking the training to overcome, completely to overcome, sensual desire. So this person gives attention to the sign of the beautiful which means giving attention to a beautiful, attractive object, something which is a basis for the arising of sensual desire or lust. And if this person is not careful, then by giving attention 
to the sign of the beautiful, the attractive object, the delightful object, the attractive sense object, then lust infects the mind. Desire arises, and at first it can arise subtly, even at a subliminal level, so one is not aware that it is invading the mind. But if one doesn't recognize this lust seeping into the mind, then it will gradually gather momentum until it becomes powerful. And when there's strong lust or attraction, then there will also arise disappointment when one fails to get what one's want, what one wants. There will come aversion to the obs- obstacles to one's desire, to the fulfillment of one's desire. And then one will become angry, resentful, and then full of hatred and delusion. And in that case, again, one will die with lust, hatred, and delusion and move towards a bad rebirth. Sariputta says that this is like purchasing a polished, clean dish from a shop. Then one brings it home, puts it away in a dusty corner someplace, and never bothers to take care of it. If one does this, then the dish will continue, will become dusty, dirty, and stained again until it becomes useless. Okay, and then the person who does not have a blemish and recognizes that he doesn't have a blemish, this person, Sariputta says, does not, because he's aware that the mind is without blemishes, he also realizes that he has to be careful, has to be mindful and heedful. So this person will not fall into complacency and thus will not attend to the sign of the beautiful and in this way lust, hatred and delusion won't invade and infect the mind and so such a person when he dies will pass away with a mind that is free from lust, hatred and delusion. This is like somebody who buys a clean and bright dish from the shop, then constantly cleans it and uses it so that the dish never gets dirty. Okay, so this is the fourth type of person and in each case Sariputta has explained why it is important to ensure that one understands one's own state of mind. Yeah, I think that is when we can start to say this is a learned man when he knows there is 
greed in me, there is hatred in me, there is delusion in me, there is non-greed in me, non-hatred in me, non-delusion in me. When he knows such a thing, then we are talking about somebody who is a learned man. Okay, now Venerable Sariputta raises the question, this is in paragraph 9. Now he raises the question, what does the word blemish mean? And he's going, he says that blemish is a term for the spheres of evil, unwholesome wishes or evil, unwholesome desires. And now Sariput is going to explain what is meant by these evil desires with special reference to the monk's life. But I think it's not so difficult to transpose from these examples into the conditions of everyday life, of civilian life. Okay, here first Sariputta takes the case of a monk who commits an offense, some violation of the monastic rules. And he doesn't know that he has committed an offense. And then other monks come to know that he has committed this offense and they maybe criticize him for this, not harshly, but gently and politely. But still, because this person has these evil wishes, he's not trying to purify himself, but he's flowing with this current of desire when he's taken up for criticism and for correction. Instead of accepting the correction humbly, with thankfulness and gratitude, instead he becomes angry and defensive and then he becomes bitter and bitter against the other monks who are criticizing him. Okay, so this we have to consider not only the case of monks, but in everyday life, even at work, sometimes we commit some faults, everybody has imperfections. People that we work with, maybe we'll keep it our boss or colleagues, our friends, might take us aside and say, you know, you made such and such a mistake. Um, in the future, you should try to avoid these mistakes. If we have a gentle, gentle, humble person who wants to learn, who wants to correct himself, then that person will accept the correction, the criticism, in a spirit of thankfulness and will try to correct himself in the future. But if one just reacts by getting angry with the person who gives the advice, then thinking, this person is my enemy, maybe he's jealous of me and wants to take my job, <laughs> then we just create trouble for ourselves and trouble for others. So instead of becoming angry and defensive when we're criticized, then we should, instead of responding in that way, we should accept correction and accept it with the recognition that we do have certain faults 
and in future we have to try to correct these points. Okay, the next case is that where a monk commits an offense and when he does so then he wants to be corrected by the monks, uh, by another monk, privately, but not in the midst of the Sangha, not before the whole community of monks. But it sometimes happens that when there is a meeting of the Sangha, then one of the monks will start criticizing the fault of this of this monk who has made some error and then the monk who has made the error will again he will respond with shame and humiliation and then he becomes angry and embittered against the other monks for criticizing okay, and then the third case is where the monk commits an offense and then he thinks it's all right for a superior, an elder monk, to correct me, but I don't want, or one who is my equal, to correct me, but I don't want a monk who is my junior to correct me. This is a kind of pride. Then it happens that a person who is junior to him corrects him, and in this case he becomes angry and upset and he feels bitterness towards that junior monk. Again, we can meet such, such a situation in everyday life, sometimes even in the case of parents and children. Maybe the, we think it's normal that parents can correct children, but children should not correct their parents. But sometimes the parent might be making a mistake and the child will correct the parent. <laughs> in this case, one shouldn't bring the old-fashioned morality to bear and tell the child, children should just be seen and not heard. But if the child is giving valuable advice, even the parent should accept it. It doesn't mean that they have to be intimidated by the children, but sometimes the children will know better than the parents. Or else people sometimes, in conservative societies, they have the idea that the husband can correct the wife, the wife shouldn't correct the husband. <laughs> but in fact, both husbands and wives can make mistakes in the relationship, and both should have perfect liberty to correct the other, if it's necessary. Any further examples? Yeah, no examples, but maybe we can say that these function only properly when oneself has a corrected vision. Without yeah. that corrected vision, we will be always a little bit in the dark about these kind of uh, situations. And we have also to know that only the arahats are free from conceit. So to be wounded very easily is a man when it comes to that point. That's the corrective vision which goes or protects us from from falling in these mistakes. But this you mean that the person who admonishes the other, who corrects the other, 
should be one who is himself. He said, he, he also, without having this corrective vision, which we yeah. call Samadhiti, yeah, yeah. it is very, very, very difficult to find oneself clearly in that jungle, because there is also an enormous tenderness involved with it, yeah, when yeah. you meet people who have not, yeah. and you have to respect yeah, yeah. their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, the Buddha points out that when one person, especially one monk, wants to correct another, he says that there are five conditions that before he speaks to the other, he should set up five conditions in his mind. I'm not sure if I can remember them all. <laughs> he should make sure that first that the other, um, just some might of the five might not be correct. It's not working by memory. He should make sure first that the other person is really at fault so that he doesn't criticize him illegitimately. Okay, when he speaks to the person, he should make sure that he speaks gently, not harshly. He should make sure that he's speaking in accordance with Dhamma, not in violation of Dhamma, in accordance with the spirit of the teaching, not against the teaching. He should make sure that he speaks with a mind of loving-kindness and friendliness towards the person, not with a mind of hatred and ill-will. And he should speak with the intention of benefiting the person, not with the intention of harming him. Okay, these are five to five points when correcting another Make sure the other person is really at fault. Make sure that one is speaking in accordance with the spirit of the teaching. Make sure that one is speaking gently, that one is speaking with a mind of loving kindness, and that one wants to benefit the person. Is that the fifth one? Ah. And if that one is not guilty of the same fault, then what one of those that I said is wrong. But the other four are correct. I think one of them is right time and right place. Right time and right place, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't correct me in public. It's embarrassing. <laughs> 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 don't start asking me any questions. <laughs> it covers also that uh, projection, no? Yeah. yeah. That, what you said, it covers the projection. Okay, the next... Um, group of thoughts that come into the mind of the monk are all revolve around self-pride or self-love. In this case, the monk wants to be given special treatment, to be singled out and set up on a pedestal as number one. So he thinks, oh, 
here in paragraph 13 that the teacher, this is the Sattva, the Buddha, might teach the Dhamma to the monks by asking a series of questions to me. That is, he wants to show off how knowledgeable he is, so he wants the Buddha, when sometimes the Buddha will give a discourse by taking some monk, then asking him questions, and then the monk will answer, and this will show the monk who answers in a bright light as somebody who's really knowledgeable about the Dhamma. So the monk gives rise to this thought, but the Buddha chooses some other monk and asks the questions to him, and this monk becomes disappointed, sad, and then becomes angry and bitter, embittered. So that is a blemish. Okay, then, the case, the monks have to go into the village on alms round. And this monk, he wants to go in front of the Sangha. In, he wants to be number one. According to the rules, the principles of the Vinaya, when the monks go for alms round, they're supposed to go in order of seniority, according to the number of Vasa, the years in the order but it seems like this monk, he doesn't care about seniority, any kind of principle, but he thinks that the monks go according to order of worthiness, and I want them all to show that I'm the most worthy monk by asking me to go. And then since the monks go in order of seniority, and maybe this is just a newly ordained monk who has to go in the back, then he feels angry and upset. Okay, then <laughs> sometimes in the alms hall, I think we could all think of examples from everyday life where this can, as were in the family, sometimes there is a seat of honor and the eldest in the family gets the special seat. Um, or in class, one student wants to be shine in front of the whole class, but some other student answers the questions correctly, and even if the teacher calls on this student and the student answers wrongly, then he feels ashamed in front of the whole class. These are the sufferings of childhood, no? We Not only childhood, but it continues into adulthood. Yeah, but we remember that even yeah. through yeah. childhood, yeah. these kind of things. Okay, then there comes a matter of getting in the alms hall, getting the best seat, getting the water in the special beautiful cup, maybe an imported cup from Japan or China, very beautifully decorated, getting the special alms food, maybe people come with special food and there's only enough for one, and he wants to get the best food. And then after the meal, there's one monk is chosen to give what's called the blessing here. This is the Anumodana, the sermon, little sermon after the meal. And the Buddha will, sometimes the Buddha will give the sermon himself, sometimes he will turn to one of the other monks and say, you give the sermon. So this monk wants to be singled out, chosen by the Buddha or by the eldest monk to give the blessing at the end of the 
near. And if some other monk gets the chance, then he feels angry and upset. Okay, then the monk thinks that he wants to be chosen to teach to the other monks, to the bhikkhunis, to the nuns, to the lay followers, and so on. But then there comes the same thoughts regarding getting to superior role, the best alms guru, the best dwelling place. If all of these go to somebody else, then this monk feels upset and disappointed. Maybe we could, in everyday life, it's like maybe somebody thinks, I want to have the biggest, brightest car on the street. Then you buy a new car and you keep the car out on the street and you think all the neighbors are looking out the window saying where or who is the owner of that new car then they see you coming out very proud with your key and you open the car, stop the car and then you're very happy till suddenly after two or three weeks the person living on the other side of the street you see him come home driving in a brighter better car than you, the, the model that you couldn't afford, he now is coming in. And so everybody on the street is now looking at his house and thinking, wow, he is truly somebody. <laughs> but our economy is working like that now. Our economy is working yeah. on this basis, yeah. no? Maybe elaborate on that. I don't think so that everybody can do for himself. <laughs> okay, now passing on to paragraph 29 and 30. Now Sariputta draws a contrast between two types of monks. And this is important because people often judge by appearances. And so this is a kind of warning not to judge by appearances. Okay, we have a case of a monk who is observing the ascetic practices. I think it was last week I spoke about the dupangas, the ascetic practices. The austere practices of, for example, living only in the forest, not living in the town or village. Going to remote places to live, not living close by to a village. Eating food, only food collected on alms round, not accepting invitations to meals. Using only rags stitched together from, uh, using only robes stitched from piece from discarded rags, not using ready-made robes. Okay, so there might be a monk who observes these ascetic practices, but his mind is still obsessed by these evil desires. He's not making any effort to control, to master the mind. And maybe because of his ascetic practices, he becomes proud and overbearing and looks down on other people, on other monks. And he wants everybody to show special homage and veneration to him. 
But if people know, they find out that this monk, though he is displaying himself as a great ascetic, if they find out that he has these evil desires, these unwholesome desires, then they won't respect and venerate him. Especially, Sariputta says, his fellow monks won't respect and venerate him. Because these, even though he shows himself as having, as, as observing such austere practices, but all of this austerity is, at a deep level, it's motivated by this desire for respect, esteem, and homage from others. So basically, he's motivated by pride and ambition, not by the wish to purify himself. And Sariputta uses again a very, effect, a, a very effective simile. He says that this is like a bronze dish which has been clean, it's clean, bright, well-polished, and one brings it back from the shop and one puts instead I don't know why anybody would do this, but one puts inside of it the carcass of a snake, dog, or even a human, part of a human corpse, then covers it with another bowl and goes back to the market. Then people seeing one doing this, they ask, what is it that you are carrying about just like a treasure? And then you raise the lid and the people look in and they see this corpse of a snake or dog and then they become repelled and disgusted. And even if they're hungry, then they lose their appetite. This is the bright, shiny, bronze bowl that is like the form of this ascetic of this monk who's observing the ascetic practices. But his inside, these evil, unwholesome desires, this craving for fame and respect, that is like the carcass of the snake or the dog, something foul and repulsive. On the other hand, now paragraph 30, we can have a monk who might appear quite ordinary on the outside. He's living in a village. He goes, he accepts invitations to meals. He wears well-stitched well robes offered by householders. And yet his mind is very pure, free from this kind of greed craving for fame and honor, and he's working to purify himself. Yet a monk like this, Sariputta said, will be honored, respected, revered, and venerated by his fellow monks. The reason? Because he is abandoning or he's abandoned these evil, unwholesome states. This is like a bright, shiny bowl which has been brought from the shop, 
then it is filled with delicious, well-prepared food and you bring it back to the market and when people look inside and they see this delicious food and they smell the delicious scent of the food then even if they had just recently had a meal then they want to eat again <laughs> because the food is so well cooked and well prepared and I think this is a, a very important message here that one shouldn't judge to the Buddhist lay people not to judge monks by the outside appearance especially not to think just because some monks are very austere and ascetic therefore they are holy and saintly and just because some monks are living in the villages in temples serving the people therefore that they should be neglected because I've seen monks who are living in the village, in village temples who are serving people with true attitude of metta, with loving kindness and compassion, who are very humble, simple, and even though they're not great meditators, but they have enough understanding of the Dhamma to be working inwardly at purifying themselves. And also I have to say I've known some monks who make a great display of their asceticism, but are not really as worthy as some of these humble village men. Any of you have anything? Uh, I would say that is a point where especially the Sinhalese people have to know that some guy is far better than the reputation. Eh? I would say far better. <laughs> have been very comprehensible back in ancient India when there were cartwrights who would take a block of wood and use it to make a wheel for a wagon. So Moggallana speaks of an experience that he had one day when he was living in Rajgir and he went for Amram and he saw a cartwright working on making a wheel. He was complaining a fellow. And there was a friend of his who was an ascetic, an Ajivaka ascetic, standing by watching him. And this Ajivaka ascetic, the Ajivakas were one of the spiritual communities contemporary with the Buddha. Ajivaka ascetic had come from a family of Cartwrights and so he knew the trade, he knew how to make a proper wheel, even though since he now took up the ascetic life, he wasn't making the wheel himself. But he was watching his friend planing the fellow, and as he was watching, he was thinking, my friend should plane this bend in the wood, should take out this twist, should remove this bolt so that the fellow of the wheel will be perfectly round without any bends or folds. And even while the ascetic was thinking this, the cartwright working away, the wheel maker, was doing exactly what he was thinking, even though the cartwright didn't have his, any psychic power to read his mind. But both of them knew the art of making a wheel, and so as the ascetic was thinking those thoughts, 
that Cartwright was doing exactly what he should have done. And so the Ajipaka ascetic then said, he is planing the wheel just as if he knew my heart with his own heart. Okay, so Moggallana's point is that Moggallana himself had very, very powerful itties, or supernormal powers. And probably he would have been aware of the minds of the people in the audience, the monks who were listening to the discourse, and he would have known all of their faults, all of their weaknesses, all of their liabilities. But Venerable Sariputta, though he was the wisest of the disciples, he was also extremely deficient in psychic power. It seems he didn't really have, in my understanding from the sutras, he didn't have these supernormal powers of reading the minds of other people. But yet, he was speaking exactly as Moggallana wanted him to speak. And then Moggallana continues his simile by listing the faults of these monks who were sitting in the assembly. He says, So too, friend, there are persons who are faithless, without faith, and who have gone forth from the household life into homelessness, not out of faith in the Dhamma, but merely to earn a living, to live comfortably. Then he lists all of these faults. They are fraudulent, deceitful, treacherous, haughty, hollow, vain, rough-tongued, and so on and so on, lazy, unmindful, unconcentrated, stupid, devoid of wisdom. And Venerable Sariputta, with his discourse on the Dhamma, is planing out their faults just as if he knew my heart with his own heart. Then there are other monks here who have gone forth out of faith from the household life into homelessness, who are guarded in the senses, moderate in eating, devoted to wakefulness, respectful of the training, and so on, energetic, mindful, concentrated, possessing wisdom. And these, on hearing Venerable Sariputta's discourse on the Dhamma, drink it in and eat it up, word, as it, as it were, by word and thought. Good, it is indeed good that Venerable Sariputta makes his fellow monks emerge from the unwholesome and establish themselves in the wholesome. Then he uses a simile. He compares that with the monks who accept this discourse on the Dhamma is just like a woman or man who's fond of adornments who would take a garland of flowers with both hands and put it on their head. In the same way, those who are respectful of the training 
will accept this discourse of Venerable Sariputta and use it to emerge from the unwholesome and establish themselves in the wholesome. Okay, and that ends this discourse by Venerable Sariputta. Okay, if there's any questions, any comments, then please feel free to, to ask me. Or anything further to add? Now maybe that there is also a, a degree of, not so much as a blemish, but as a handicap based upon mana. That is when the monk is willing in his abode, really honestly in high standard of sealer, profound meditation, then Mara comes from behind with Mana. Mm. And then it is said that, that monk grows horns. And these horns grow bigger and bigger and bigger and then he cannot go anymore out of his cave. <laughs> okay, any questions or comments? <laughs> yeah, very uh, interesting yeah. note that the English treasure, English treasure, needs to be called the noble. Sovereign power. So, where is it? Any further questions? What is meant by I think no, I don't think that by blemish one is working at speaking at that at such a fundamental level yet. Here, as it said here, that the blemishes, what is meant by blemishes, are these evil, unwholesome wishes. So it's these, you could say, the anger and resentment and bitterness that arise when one is criticized by others, criticized by one who is inferior than oneself, when one um, is not treated with special respect when one is not given pride of place. I think it is also that the constant running around with one's private lawyer who ju tries to justify <laughs> all kinds of things. No? I mean, that is inside there. Yeah. He, when he was practicing, he was practicing all these girls. He was raising all the five girls. Yeah, right. He was practicing all these things. Vegetarian, and playing with the forest. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He must be having, he may have had all the evil intentions in his heart. 
<laughs> having the evil yeah. intentions in the heart. Yeah. Definitely, so, yeah. So, like the case of the glittering uh, vessel containing a dead... Uh, yeah, so in his case it was not just a glittering vessel because... He had already made several attempts to assassinate the Buddha. <laughs> okay, I think that we will stop for this evening. Then next week, put sutta number six. But I see that there's not so much in that sutta which is new, which we haven't d- covered already. It really it just goes through the stages, mainly through the four stages of sanctity the different supernormal powers. So we'll skip number six and we'll go directly to sutta number one. This is the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. You should read number six, but it doesn't need very much explanation. Particularly since almost everybody here has been coming over a long period of time. All the terms have been already explained. So Bertie, 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 you remember next week's sutta number one you make a copy.